that you just completely didn't recognize the first time you saw it. Well, I, I hope that I'll be able to do that for you this morning with this passage. Um, so, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Now, before I read it, uh, I'm going to set the stage and I'm going to put it in the context just to refresh everybody about what's going on because Acts is a narrative. It's a lot easier for us to jump into the middle of the book of Romans, which is a letter and deals with a variety of topics. But in Acts, when we jump in the middle, we're usually jumping in the middle of a story. So just to put this particular passage into context so we all know what's going on. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit about what's been happening. So Paul has been accused by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem of doing a whole bunch of things, most of which aren't true. Long story short, there's trials, and he finds it necessary to basically invoke his right as a Roman citizen and demand that he be tried at the emperor's tribunal in Rome, which is a right all citizens had. This is the equivalent, the ancient times equivalent, of us taking an appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. We're going to take it to the highest court in the land where hopefully it will be fair and unbiased. So that's what he's done. Um, time passes, like years. Um, he's held under house arrest in Caesarea. This is where he writes a lot of the letters that are in the New Testament. And eventually, they finally put him on a boat to Rome. Now, uh, and I'm going to do this backwards for me so that it's correctly for you guys. But Caesarea, so the Mediterranean, is shaped kind of like a sideways U in a way, in a vague way. And so you've got the boot, which is Italy, hanging down right here. And then Greece kind of pokes into the Mediterranean on itself. And way over here on the inside curve is Israel. And Caesarea was on the Israeli coast. It's actually not terribly far from Jerusalem. Um, so that's where they're departing from. And they're going to sail all the way across to the boot to get to Rome. Um, the ship leaves. Paul has a vision about the fate of the ship. And they stop at Crete, which is an island in the middle, in between, a big one. And Paul tells them, tells the sailors, look, just get the supplies and let's go. Just, just, just don't stop. Don't go in. Don't take time. Let's just, let's reprovision and, and hit the, well, not the road, but the ocean, so to speak. Um, they do not listen to Paul. And the soldiers and the sailors do what they do when you get shore leave after a, uh, a journey and trapped on a boat with a bunch of other guys. They go into Crete and they carouse and they have a good time. And it takes time and it delays their voyage. Okay? Now, then and now, there is a good time of year to sail on the Mediterranean and there's a bad time of year to sail on the Mediterranean and has to do with storms and patterns and everything like that. And they party in Crete just long enough to move them into the unfavorable time period. So this is less Paul um, being worried about God's retribution or God's plan and more Paul just knowing as a well-traveled traveler that this is not the time to take an extra day or three uh, in the ship bars and the, and the docks and the ports in Crete. Sure enough, as soon as they leave and they're on the ship, 
a huge storm comes up, and they spend 14 days of terror and panic on a stormy ocean. And they run out of food. They run out of supplies. Paul, noted for his humility in this moment, turns to them and says, I told you so! I told you so! You couldn't listen. Um, <laughs> they wind up, other things happen, there's a few other little notes, but they wind up next to an island, and the ship hits a submerged reef by this island, and it tears the bottom out of the boat completely, and the boat starts to sink. Now, Paul, because of his vision, he looks around and he tells everybody, don't worry, we all make it. We're all going to survive. The soldiers basically respond, yeah, that's nice, and then they panic, and then they suggest killing all of the prisoners because that's their duty, and if they can't get them delivered to trial or prison or what have you, then they're just going to make sure that a random murderer isn't set free because they can swim better than everybody else. Uh, it's actually the soldier in charge of Paul who stops that plan. And he does it for no other reason than he's gotten to know Paul and he kind of likes the guy. So he says, well, let's not do this. This is not the best idea. Ship goes down. Everybody on the ship, 276 people, they all end up just swimming for it. And sure enough, true to Paul's prediction, everybody makes it, all 276. And they climb out of the ocean after a hard swim from the reef. And then the thunder cracks and the cold rain starts to fall. And the misery continues. And that's where we pick up the story in the text. All right, so now, before I read it, I want to remind you that Acts was written by Luke, okay? He's with Paul on this journey, and so this portion of Acts is actually told from a first-person perspective, and that's who the speaker is. When they, he ref refers to himself as I and puts himself in it, it's Luke who's telling you this. It's Luke who's speaking. It's the same guy who wrote the gospel that bears his name. Actually, the entire book of Acts is actually a first-person perspective. It's just that the first half, he's relaying stuff he wasn't personally present for. And so he phrases it that way. When it can be a little weird when you, all of a sudden it seems like he's talking in I and we. And he's really been doing that from the beginning, but I digress. Here we go. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and they said that he must be a god. couple of quick notes before I dive into interpretation and symbolism and all that kind of stuff. Um, Malta is right below Italy. So if you picture the boot, 
just to put the geography in your mind. You picture the boot, then you have Sicily, which is this huge island just hanging out near the toe, and then there's this little bitty island underneath Sicily called Malta. Why is that fun to note? Because they almost made it, guys. They were right there. They could probably see Sicily from, <laughs> from the reef when they went down and had to duck into the island at Malta. Um, the other thing I want to call your attention to, just as kind of a side note for your personal knowledge, is justice is capitalized. Okay? The translators of the ESV, that's English Standard Version of the Bible, which is the ones we have in the pews and the one I'm preaching from today, uh, they uh, make the choice and they feel, and I agree with them here for this choice, that the islanders are attributing the supposed retribution to a specific deity, to a specific, that's why we have the capital J. Uh, it's a proper name. It's the female deity, Eustustia, okay, which is the Latin version of this uh, name. Now, we've all seen Lady Justice before, right? You got the blindfold, she's got the sword, she's got the scales, yeah? Yeah, that's her. That's her. Uh, but a lot of you didn't realize that was a pagan deity hanging out in front of our courthouse. Yeah. There it is. Um, fun fact. So she's introduced, by which I mean completely made up, by Emperor Augustus once he takes power. So why? Well, what he's doing is, is he takes power. He's emperor. We've never really had an emperor before. He's reigning over a huge piece of territory. And he wants to put and firm pressure on a series of public morality, okay? So what does he do? He's like, oh, and by the way, you've surely heard of this goddess Eustitia, the goddess of justice, right? That's the quality we all need to have. Worship it. When the story we just read takes place, the cult of Eustitia is only 30 years old. Brand spanking new, and it's fresh, and it's new, and it's a new thing, which is why that's one of their go-tos. It's also a newer concept. They didn't have this real concept of karma that the universe was going to write things all okay until it starts to get force-fed to them, okay? Anyway, let's look at this story. So Acts is a historical text, by which I mean it's meant to simply be a record of what happened. Um, it's not packed with imagery or symbolism like the book of Revelation is. Uh, it's not filled with subtlety and double meanings that rely on an understanding of the specific culture of the time and, and those kind of things. No, the book of Acts is pretty straightforward. They went there, and then they went there. They had this conversation, and then they did this. It's the book of Acts. Um, and there are plenty of miraculous things in the book of Acts, but they don't give it much attention when you really look at it. Um, usually when they address miracles in the book of Acts, they say things like, and they went there and they healed lots of people, and then they left and they went to a new place. We don't get the details. We don't get the details. Luke seems to care a lot more about who fed them well when they came to town and who drove them out of town than how many blind people could see after they had blown through, okay? It's not a record of miracles. It's not meant to be. 
It's meant to be a record of journeys and interactions with communities. That's the purpose of the book of Acts, and that's why we don't hit all the miracles that occur very hard. More so than any other book in the New Testament, Acts does not really seem to require more than what's on the surface. Uh, now, it should be noted that that's comparatively. That's as compared to the letter to Romans or Revelations. There's always more than what's on the surface, especially when we talk about the Bible. But because of all that, this particular story seems to be a little bit out of place. A little bit out of place. Why tell it? Who cares? It's a cute little antidote, right? Hey, the viper, he almost got hurt, but he didn't. Kind of anticlimactic. And it seems to be almost humorous. Well, the simplest interpretation, which is the one most people use or accept, is that the reason why we have this story is, that, is why Paul is going to be honored on Malta. Because he spent the next couple of verses where they bring people to him and he heals them. And this is kind of why they treat him as somebody special and important because they think he's a god. Okay. And you know what? That's alone is a purpose. And it's perfectly fine. And for all I know today, in spite of my sermon, that could have been Luke's intention. That could have been all he wanted to do by telling us this story. But when I read it, personally, there's an extra layer here. There's a certain amount of importance at play in the elements used in this story. And if you'll let me, I want to take you on that thought journey with me. Okay? And we'll see if you feel like it's as important to you as it is to me when we're done. So let's go back to the story real quick and let's paraphrase it real fast. Paul is casting something into the fire. And then from what he threw in, something leaps out and bites him and hangs on and it is a snake. Okay? Pretty straightforward. This, then this, then that. Now, the Bible has a lot of words for a serpent-like creature. Serpent, first of all. Dragon. Snake. Leviathan, depending on how you want to read it and what your personal interpretation is, is sometimes seen as a kind of like a sea serpent-like creature. Okay, they're all there, and it's a variety of words. And it's an unfortunate thing, in my opinion, that older English translations of the Bible tried to translate all of those as merely serpent. And they did that on purpose because they're trying to link them all together and create a unified identity connected with Satan, right? Well, I don't agree with that. I think that these different words were used for a very specific purpose. They mean different things. The authors all knew there was a word for serpent. So why did they pick dragon? Why did they pick snake? Maybe they had a reason. And I don't think it was just regional, okay? It wasn't a colloquialism. This isn't like how we call all sodas Cokes, and those poor misguided fools in the north call them pop, okay? And that's not... Not what we're talking about here. <laughs> Thank you for going there with me. Uh, no, um, the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic that is used in the Testaments, the old and the new, they don't choose words without purpose. 
They don't choose words without purpose. So a dragon is a mighty primordial creature of chaos that's representative of so many things depending on when it's used. A snake is actually a positive symbol. It's used to represent wisdom. Solomon is called snake-like. This isn't a subtle jab at Solomon's character. There's plenty of ways to criticize Solomon's character, but snake-like was not intended to be one of them, okay? So what word is used in this story? Viper. Viper. Not a source of wisdom. Something that can kill you with a bite. Something that poisons you and causes you to fall over dead. And in that area of the world, it takes about an hour. Unless you're doing jumping jacks, and it could take 15 minutes. Okay? And there wasn't a cure. They didn't carry snake bite kits. There wasn't a magic pill or anything of that nature. You got bit, that was it. They start talking about who gets your stuff. Um... Now, I'm going to link this passage through the choice of the word of viper a little bit with two passages from the Old Testament, and you'll find out why as we go, I hope. Um, So no need to turn with me. I'm going to read it, but you're welcome to if you want to. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 goes like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord of God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, oh, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Now the serpent, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. His, um, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in this particular story, just as a side tangent, I'm sympathizing quite a bit with the Lord because I have this exact conversation almost weekly at my house, being the father of two boys. And in case you're curious, this is usually how it goes. I turn to my wife and I say, honey... Does it seem suspiciously quiet to you? And she turns to me and says, yes, as a matter of fact, it does. And those of you who aren't parents, parenting is this wonderful dichotomy of desperately wanting silence. And then when you get it, you can't trust it. (laughs) You just can't. So what do I do? I get up and I go into the room to investigate why this suspicious silence has occurred. And as I enter the room, I catch my children leaving the room because they have sensed that I am coming and they do not want to be there when I arrive. Usually, the evidence of their crime is plain to see. There's never enough time to hide all the evidence or come up with a reasonable story. And so I usually am able to respond with, you know, something 
uh, dignified, like, what did you do? Did you do the very thing I asked you not to do? And their answer (coughs) is usually something along the lines of, well, he did it too. Or he made me do it. It was his idea, which they're doing to each other at the same time. And then we start doling out consequences. Same story, my house every week, just about. But it's the consequences part of this story that I want to, uh, want to call your attention to. Uh, the story from Genesis presents snakes and their poisonous bite as a dire consequence of the fall. Okay? This is a characteristic of the world that's not going to be in the triumph of the kingdom. No, this is a character, this is part of the world as it is now. Flawed, sinful, unfinished, dangerous, broken. Now, to continue with that line of thought, I'm going to hop over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 16. And bear with me. This is all one sentence. One. Just one sentence. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he may humble you and test you to do you good in the end. One sentence. The uh, Israelite journey through the wilderness had long been understood as a metaphor for the church. The promised land is the kingdom of God. Right? And... The wilderness is the world right now, with sickness and hurricanes and famine, war, death. And there's beauty in the world today, right now, as it is. With all of those things, there's still beauty in the world. We can still see the glory of God. We can still see evidence of God's greatness, just as there was manna and water from a rock in the wilderness for the Israelites. But guess what? The serpents are there too. The serpents are there too, and they've been there since the fall, and they're still with us today. Now, I'm going to switch gears for a second. You've all heard of the lake of fire, right? Eternal burning, punishment. Yeah, it's mentioned a few times, debatably, in the New Testament. Okay? How about the burning bush? Everybody familiar with the burning bush? Okay, so with those two examples... Burning bush, lake of fire. Let me ask you a quick question, which is rhetorical, so don't feel the need to shout out if you don't want to. Is fire a positive or negative symbol in the Bible? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Fire. When we run across fire randomly reading scripture, do we automatically assign it a good connotation or is it a bad thing? 
Well, the real answer is we pull it from the context of the passage we happen to be reading. Not everything has to be symbolically consistent through the entire Bible. We have to remind ourselves every now and then that there was a whole number of different authors writing in all different cultures in several different time frames. It's okay if everything doesn't seem to be consistent all the way through. It's fine. It doesn't really challenge anything. But for me, I think what is consistently symbolic about fire and the use of it throughout the whole book is two things, purity and sacrifice, purity and sacrifice. So let's take the burning lake as a reference of punishment in the New Testament. There's a sacrificial element to being condemned to eternal burning. Who's making the sacrifice? God. That's his children. That's his people who've chosen that, by the way, for the record. There's also a purifying element to that. We are burning away that which is ungodly in the world. I know, nobody's comfortable with fire and brimstone. We avoid it in modern day, but it's in there. It's in there. We've got to talk about it every now and then. And really, I'm only hitting it today because we're talking about fire in the context of this story from Acts. So don't worry, I'm not going to take it too deeper than that. But... It's there. Now, most sacrifices to Yahweh were burnt offerings. And the flames of the burning bush and the sword of the seraphim that guards the entrance to Eden is a flaming, powerful weapon, which is meant to connotate a certain holiness, purity. Okay? So that's why I would like to suggest that the element of fire consistently can be used, whether you look at it as negative or positive, And I think if we really think about it, they all tend to be positive at the end of the day. But um, purity and sacrifice. Okay, so now let's return to our story, Shipwrecked Paul. And we've now got a symbolic understanding of both fire and vipers. And let's read it again and see what we can glean from it. I'm not going to literally read it, but we're going to paraphrase one more time. Paul, a man who has accepted Christ and has walked a godly path with the Holy Spirit cast a bundle of wood into the fire, which has a snake. From that bundle, out of that fire, the viper strikes. It is a representative of the imperfect world, a stand-in for sin, for temptation, for illness, and it bites him and it latches on. But because Paul has accepted Christ, and knows the Spirit, and reveres the Father, the consequences of the fall are not for him. He's beyond the punishment of Adam. He has been forgiven not only of his sins, but of the sins that have come before. He's now an architect of the kingdom of God. He's a guide to lead people there. He's not aimlessly wandering in the wilderness. For him, the viper has no poison. And as I say that, and I hit a little extra hard, I want to remind everybody I'm talking in metaphor and symbols. This is not encouragement for you to go pick up a live snake. Okay? 
even though, though, this viper has no poison, it still takes a hold on him, and he has to cast it back into the fire and be purified of it. So how do we apply that to us, to our lives? How do we walk out of the door in about an hour after the singing and the talking and the visiting and have more than just something interesting to think about on the drive home? Actually have something we can absorb. Well, I want to make four points that hopefully will let you do that, okay? And then we'll have some final thoughts, and then we'll be done. Point number one, Paul threw that viper in the fire twice. Two times. Once in the bundle of wood, and then comes back out, and he has to throw it back in again. We all have our temptations. We all have our weaknesses, our trials. There are things we do, things we think, things we say that keep a distance between us and God. Okay? And we all recognize that we have to sacrifice that. We have to cast that into the flames. We've got to purify ourselves of those things. That's something we can all recognize. But here's the thing. Sometimes they leap back out at us. Sometimes they take a hold again. And we have to cast them out again. And that's okay. That's part of it. Now, these things can be temptations. These things can be habits we have control over, and that's frustrating. But I'd like to throw at you the fact that often they're not. Depression. Depression will come back. Even after you feel like you've confidently beaten it, and have not had to wrestle with it for years, it can come back. Cancer can reoccur decades after it's been cured. That viper will leap out of the fire back at you and take a hold. Grief can reoccur long after you've put the person you've grieved into the ground and dealt with it and moved on with your lives, out of nowhere, you can suddenly find yourself wrestling with that grief again. Which brings me to point number two. God doesn't pull the viper off of Paul's hand. Paul does. It is an action of Paul's to shake the viper off and send it back into the fire. So when your vipers suddenly return, even though you've thrown them into the fire already, once, twice, maybe a thousand times, it's on you to throw them out again. Now, God will stop the venom. Your spirit, your love, your faith will not be poisoned by these things. But it's on you to take the action. You have to break their hold on you. You have to cast them back into the fire. Now, God stacked the deck in your favor. He's given you the tools you need. He's given you the protection you need to be able to do that. But at the end of the day, the action is yours. A third point is aimed at those of you who are very familiar with this passage and never considered any of the things I've talked about today. 
it is important to reread the Bible. Even the stories we know very, very well. I believe in this book, it's the word of God. Okay? Now, I don't personally use the word inerrant. I prefer the word inspired because I like to account for a human element. But even if you do choose the word inerrant or inspired or any other perspective, if you can confidently make the statement that in this book is the word of God, and then listen to me when I tell you it is not a transcription. It is a conversation. It is active. It is two-way. And it is ongoing. Don't walk away from the conversation just because it's saying something it has said before. Okay? You can engage the Trinity through reading this book. Seek, question, challenge, change, apologize, listen, discover, forgive. You can do all those things just by rereading the Bible and being connected with God. Now, there's other ways you can do that. There's other mediums you can interact with God, and they're all needed and they're valid. There's prayer, service, meditation. But I think it is imperative to those of us who call ourselves Christians that however other ways we may do it, we never stop doing it through Scripture. Okay, last point. Point number four, actually from verse number four, which I'm going to reread you. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. He, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Okay. So, noted chef, author, and celebrity Anthony Bourdain killed himself this past week. A day before that, Kate Spade, a noted fashion icon, killed herself. Four years ago, Robin Williams killed himself. The list goes on and on and on. And that's just the celebrities. That's just the celebrities. I guarantee you, everyone in this room probably knows someone who has either killed themselves or they know someone who is very close to someone who has lost someone in this manner. Now, when such a thing happens, particularly a celebrity, my Facebook blows up and people talk and conversation occurs in restaurants and in parties that talk about it. And I am saddened each and every time because I hear the same dialogue. I hear the same dialogue and I hear it from believers and non-believers, from young and from old. And these are the things that I hear. Why didn't they reach out for help? There must have been clear signs that their friends and family just didn't care about or were too occupied to notice. How selfish was this person to do this? How cowardly. 
forgive me, but I don't think that's the Christian way to respond. I don't think that is the Christian way to respond, especially in a public forum. Someone very dear to me attempted suicide in college. Thankfully, they were unsuccessful. I'm just laying it out here for you guys. I've known maybe a dozen people who've killed themselves that I knew personally, close. Uh, But this person was unsuccessful. This person's best and closest friend was also their roommate at the time. And this roommate, upon hearing of the attempt, accused them of doing it all for attention. Oh, this is just a a, a rather pathetic grab for attention. And they made this accusation to this person's face while they were in the hospital recovering from the attempt. Another fun story I've got for you is another close friend of mine who's been struggling mightily with depression his whole life um, said to his girlfriend in front of me, I'm really depressed again. I've been that way for a while. I don't know how to function. I think I need to go back and see my psychiatrist again. And his girlfriend's response, and I'm going to do this the best way I can do, just do the best mimicry I can. This was her response to that. (sighs) Again? Really? So why is that? Why am I bringing all that up? Why am I talking about these things in context with that one verse? Well, here, do you know what not one of those islanders in Malta did? Pulled the snake off of Paul's hand. Nobody pulled the snake off. Nobody bandaged him. Nobody made him comfortable. Nobody said, oh man, this, this is bad. I'm sorry. No. Instead, they just watched and they talked amongst themselves and they discussed whether or not the snake was deserved or not. Whether or not this was just. And when Paul shook the snake off into the fire, still they just watched. And they wanted to see how long it would take him to die. The image I have is they're probably taking side backs. Who's who's got 30 minutes? Who's got 30 minutes? Who wants to lay money that it swells up this big before he keels over? It was entertainment in a sick way. To conclude, I just want to throw two final thoughts at you to wrap this whole thing up. Uh, The first one is, I think we should all, me included, we should all ask ourselves, how many vipers are hanging from our arms right now? How many uh, sins, fears, temptations have we already defeated that somehow has a hold of us again? And then the last thought I want to give you is, do not be an islander from this story. The New Testament is pretty clear about how we are supposed to respond in these instances. We don't have to approve. 
We don't have to condone the action or the, the trial or any of that, but how we react is we're meant to heal. We're meant to help, love, pray, empathize, forgive. None of those mean we look at what has happened and said this is good or it was okay that this person took this action. None of them do that. But they all are responding to the struggle, whether it ends in a tragedy or it's an ongoing thing, in a manner that is Christ-like. And not only are those the things we should be doing, but it's what we should expect from the people seated around us right now in church. We should expect those responses. And if we truly do expect those responses, then there is no shame and no fear in reaching out for help. There is no vulnerability in saying, Got a snake hanging off. Can anybody help me through it? Or just bear witness while I deal with this. Pray with me.